Welcome to Retro Fanfic Retrospective, the podcast where we dredge up old fanfiction and expose it to the cold, harsh light of 2020. My name is Amato, and with me are... Tori. And our special guest for today... Mar. We're getting used to this because I've never spoken to Mar until today, about an hour ago. (laughs) That's the way the best episodes are shot. You just jump in head first and you see what pops out. Yeah, did everyone get the script though? Um, I'm not, I'm not seeing it here. Need to keep up kayfabe here. (laughs) I I do wrestling. I got a script, but I wasn't entirely sure what it was. If it was a parking ticket or the script, so might be a little, little off sync here. Oh no! Uh, Did you throw it away because it was probably a parking ticket? I did. If you throw away parking tickets, I heard you don't have to pay for them. Yeah, that's absolutely true. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, who would keep track of that kind of thing? Right, exactly. Right? It's never come back to bite me in the ass. I believe firmly that as long as you don't pay attention to it, it can't come back to bite you in the ass. It's just, you just ignore it harder. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it ceases Mar- to exist. <laughs> anyway. Mar, thank you very much for joining us today. Um, and kind of out of the blue... Basically, I ran into a Twitter thread that you had written about how much you liked the fanfic for today, and it's one of my favorites, and <laughs> I'd been looking for an excuse to get, you know, one or more of my friends to read it and talk about it with me for the last two years, and so finally I had that excuse. Oh, fantastic. See, that's a similar experience to mine, because I've been trying to bully my friends into reading it for about four or so years. But every time I do, they're like, Mar, I've never watched Sailor Moon. I'm like, you don't have to watch it. It's a book. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you need to play the long game and start a podcast for that purpose and get them settled in and, you know, lull them into security and then just assign it. (laughs) Well, fuck. That's that's (laughs) the sort of long term plan that apparently works out. It does. I I had not read very much fan fiction at all before starting this podcast, and now, I don't know, I feel like I'm an expert. Well, there's a couple of things I want to uh, ask you about, Mar, before we get into the fanfic itself. And I guess while we're on the topic of podcasts, you do one or more other podcasts, right? Oh, yes. I help run, along with Astro and Xavier, a podcast for The Blackout Club. It is a survival horror game that is based around a live theater element. And we run The Dreaming Prophet, where we basically collect all of the lore that is explained through the live theater aspects. And we explain it to anyone that doesn't have time to comb through a shit ton of transcripts. That sounds really useful. It is remarkably useful. It's been very satisfying because at first we were like, oh, is anyone going to listen to this? Is this going to be a useful resource? And then people kept like leaving comments and everything else going, oh, thank God you did this. (laughs) (laughs) That's super cool. I would love to do something like that. That's like, you know, just collecting all the lore you can and all the information. Sounds fun. So the Blackout Club is a kind of thing where it's going to be different each time because there's people behind the scenes who are making it different each time or like writing more material for it or something like that? 
Yep, it's essentially like um, it does. It focuses primarily story-wise on the actual cast of the game, but the actual cast of the game represent mechanics inside of the game. So when they die off or something else due to the live theater narrative, then that's no longer accessible inside the game. So it's pretty neat. Wow. I understand why you would need a comprehensive wiki and a podcast to keep this accessible. Yes, uh, yes, before we had the comprehensive wiki and a podcast, it was a little bit balls out on figuring out what the fuck was going on. Well, that sounds really cool. And remind us one more time, if listeners think that sounds intriguing, what your podcast name is then? Um, Our podcast name is The Dreaming Prophet, and it can be found on Podomatic, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, YouTube, supposedly, and Spotify. All right. Very cool. Well, let's put a pin in that until people write some Blackout Club fan fiction that we can come back and read in 15 years. Oh, excellent. Um, And we're going to transition over to our topic. We're reading a Sailor Moon fanfic today. Mostly. I mean, (laughs) it's definitely based on Sailor Moon. And uh, Tori and I have done several episodes about Sailor Moon because it was one of the big, you know, fan fiction fandoms back when I was most into fan fiction. but I don't, we certainly don't know anything about your background. You must have some experience with Sailor Moon then, right? Um, yes. Sailor Moon came out when I think I was six or five, somewhere six, eight years old. And it was my big fanfic experience and introduction to fandom because I was one of those children that was put on the internet entirely to get to be unsupervised on the internet. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> That, Gundam Wing, Dragon Ball Z, all the big animes. I've been, I, I stopped reading those fan fictions so much when I was probably somewhere in middle school. And then I stumbled across this when I was in high school, right before I graduated. And I was like, oh, fuck, this is kind of neat. <laughs> yeah, I think I must have been reading this fanfic also, like, early high school or something, because... Looking at it, I definitely, in early high school, had read up through nine, and I guess that, and maybe ten, but I guess that's like year 2000, more or less. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's actually kind of absolutely fascinating, because I didn't realize when I was reading it when I was younger, but some of these chapters are dated all the way back to originally having been written in 1998, mm-hmm. and so it's like, oh, goodness, this is almost older than I am. <laughs> This, um, one of the things about this fanfic, which we'll get to more, I guess, uh, I guess this is the time. It's Sailor Moon 4200. Like you said, it came back, came out originally, was being written in, like, late 90s by this author, Agnes McSpawn. This is our second time doing an Agnes McSpawn fanfic, actually. I think that's only the third author that we've covered twice. Am I right, Tori? (laughs) Because we had two Fernwithy fanfics, uh-huh. and we just did a second Chris Davies fanfic. Yes, yeah, I um, think you are right. But our episode two was one of Agnes McSpawn's like Ranma fanfics, uh, which was also pretty good. Oh, that name is a flashback in itself. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, what I was trying to get to is just that this fanfic is always kind of a point of interest to me because it. The authors never officially stopped writing it. It's been 10 years since he updated it, but he continues to say, yeah, I'd like to come back and finish it sometime. 
Right. And well, if you think about it, yeah, the chapters are originally, the early ones are originally dated back to 1998, but then revised in 2005. And then mm-hmm. the most recent chapter looks like 2010. So this has been going on for such a long time with these gaps. So it's possible that he could come back to it. It's kind of hard to imagine coming back to something that you haven't written in that long. But on the other hand, you know, when you read this fanfic and the supplemental materials and all this, you definitely understand that the author planned it all out from the beginning. Like, the author knew where he was going in the broad plot strokes, it seems. And it seems like the usual fanfic stuff happened where, like, the length of chapters kind of (laughs) got out of hand or longer than he was perhaps expecting and, you know, things ballooned somewhat. But I guess maybe you can go back if you kind of know what the shape of the story was to begin with. Yeah, it seemed like he knew how many chapters there were going to be and everything. Mm-hmm. That's actually a point of interest because I believe I just finished uh, this morning rereading chapter eight or so. And he actually makes a comment at the bottom of it to the effect of the fact he's like, oh, I'm absolutely going to finish it. But this chapter is about twice the length of the previous chapters, but I really couldn't cut out more. I'm sure <laughs> it will continue to get longer. Spoiler alert. It got so much longer. <laughs> it's such a common fanfic thing. And, you know, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just that you have no editor and you have no need to constrain the length in the way that a book author does. Mm-hmm. Like, there's, you can put as many words on the internet as you want. And so, like, once a lot of authors get into their long-running fanfics, there is this tendency for the chapters to just kind of continue to expand. Right. And they're also released chapter by chapter. So there's no, like, going back for a final pass and saying, oh, maybe the first three chapters should be one chapter or anything like that. That's true. It's a constant play because it would probably make a great deal of fan fiction so much more efficient to read if people went through and wrote everything in one huge chunk, the entire story, and then trimmed out the fat afterwards. But who wants to write like that with <laughs> fan fiction? Right. We'd miss out on so many great stories. I think that is the thing about fan fiction is it's so much more this community writing process. So like authors get feedback per chapter and it, it encourages them to keep going or to change things. So I don't think it would really be fan fiction without that culture in a way. Mm-hmm. Well, all I can say is when he got back in touch after our first episode about one of his fanfics about two years ago, the author <laughs> was still saying, yeah, I'm hoping to get back to it someday. And uh, Agnes McSpawn, whenever you keep writing this, I'll keep reading it. And if you never get back to it, I'm still happy to have read it. Exactly. He's one of the few authors that I'm just, I'm perfectly content to just wait for him to update. And if he doesn't update further, that's fine because I'm 100% certain he has this fuck huge outline somewhere where Mm -hmm. everything is explained in full and maybe he'll publish that someday. If not, wonderful story still existing. When we're talking about that clear outline, I don't think we've mentioned that the website for the fanfic, which you can find, I'm on the author's personal website, but I'm providing a link there at bit.ly slash RFR4200. That's 4200. That'll be the link. Um, The story has all of the chapters in place. It's just some of them don't have links. Like, you know, eight of them are forthcoming, but the titles are there. (laughs) The the numbers of the chapters are there. It's it's very cool. You don't see it very often like that. It's also really well organized. It's like, all the words, word counts for each chapter are listed and when they were revised and when they were published. Now, let's get into the fanfic itself. Um, Tori, I assigned you chapters one through seven. 
Correct. Because at the end of that, there's an author's note uh, where he kind of comments on the structure of it a little bit, and it's enough to kind of get a feel for what the story is going to be. Is that what you read? It is. I, I did really want to read more. Um, I was thinking about this when y'all were talking about, you know, reading this in high school. I was like, well, I just finished the Sailor Moon manga, like, in the freshman year of high school. And I was, this would have been a great thing to read right after that. Um, obviously, I watched the anime when I was much younger, but... Man, <laughs> yeah, I I think I might continue to read it. But yeah, I, fin- I just barely finished Chapter 7 because it was a lot of reading. Yeah. It well, absolutely was. I was reading that on my phone while I was talking to one of my friends. And I kept saying, oh, well, I'm almost halfway through this chapter. And then I paused and I was like, oh, I'm not halfway through it. <laughs> right. I got on this reread th- about halfway through Crystal Fall, chapter nine. And I mm-hmm. didn't stop because it was bad or even because it was long. It's just, it's depressing. And I just like wasn't up to it. <laughs> It gets so incredibly dark at some points. I think I was helped in getting through it when I was younger because I believe that I started reading it about chapter 13. So mm-hmm. I was able to just flip through to the further on chapters and look through and be like, oh, okay, this gets less depressing. Good to <laughs> see and slog through it with that in mind. Crystal Fall is probably the height, but we can get to that a little bit after we go through the main assigned portion. Tori, you read Uh this for the first time. Yes. Can you explain what the premise of this fanfic is? Yeah, so the premise is that it is the year 4200, hence Sailor Moon 4200. Um, 700 years ago, there was this big battle in Crystal Tokyo, and most of the senshi died along with Queen Serenity, and because Queen Serenity died, um, all the technology in the world stopped working because it was all based on crystal power. Um, and I'm sure there's going to be more backstory for that that we haven't gotten in the portion of the reading yet. But um, basically, there was a dark age, and then now society's kind of rebuilt itself, being ruled by the Serenity Council, who rules in the name of the Queen. Um, and as the story starts... I don't remember specifically how it starts, but it centers around all the senshi being reborn, essentially. Yeah, mostly. A couple points here. (laughs) Just to clarify, we're talking about Crystal Tokyo falling, and if if you're only passingly familiar with Sailor Moon, we're not talking about, like, the old, past, you know, Silver Millennium kingdom ruled by a Queen Serenity. We're talking about the kind of endgame utopia in the Sailor Moon series that the series never even imagines progressing past ruled in the future by the main character of the series, who's called Neo-Queen Serenity, because <laughs> monarchy, right. I guess. Neo-Queen Serenity. The yes. most important thing in any fantastical setting is making sure you keep that monarchy intact. <laughs> right. And, right. Absolutely. Even uh, if there's been a break of, you know, 10,000 years between <laughs> rulers or whatever. Very important. And so, it's very, very unusual in in its premise, and among Sailor Moon fanfiction. Because stuff set in Crystal Tokyo is pretty common. Because, you know, the Sailor Moon series, like so many other topics, has no interest in exploring Crystal Tokyo. And so it has, like, it's a fruitful ground for fanfic writers. Right. But this is really the only one I know of that extends that timeline way past Crystal Tokyo. I guess technically Suburban Senshi probably does, but, you know, who knows? 
would now. <laughs> it's unknowable. Um, it is pretty fantastic and unique because I used to troll a great deal of uh, Sailor Moon fan fiction, and it takes on like such a unique perspective towards it, and not only progressing past the standard canon ending, but progressing past that to such an extent, and saying, "Well, what if the canon ending ended up being bad?" Yeah, yeah, and it but it also fits so well into the kind of world of Sailor Moon. Because in Sailor Moon, you have like a silver millennium and bad things happen and it falls and society rebuilds itself. And then there's a great ice and, you know, society is put on hold and then like society is rebuilt and, you know, it's a crystal, it's a crystal Tokyo empire. And like, that's great. Yeah, but you kind of, if you just extend that pattern, of course, crystal Tokyo falls and then, you know, society is <laughs> rebuilt. Like that makes total sense. It's such a satisfying continuation of the cycle that's already built into the series as an expectation. Yeah, and right. the, the author like specifically said they wanted to explore that idea that this utopia is not going to exist forever, right? But it does exist for thousands mm-hmm. of years, and that feels sufficient, right? But then <laughs> right. you pretty yeah. good job. A pretty long time, and they, you know, all these people. I don't know if they ever explain why um, all the senshi live forever until they're killed, but whatever. They live a really <laughs> long time, then they die, and then we get a new story in which two cats go and try to find the new. Reborn Sailor Senshi, which is kind of neat. Yeah, so the start, of, the start of this fanfic, like the actual story, there's a prelude. It's set entirely in Third Tokyo, which is the Tokyo that was built over the ruins of Crystal Tokyo. It's the center of civilization because that's where, you know, people eventually found all of these surviving physical records that had not been stored in crystals or whatever um, that they used to regain the knowledge of modern technology and stuff. And um, I, I just got to say something about Third Tokyo. I feel like the thing that you really just have to accept as a conceit of this story is that this year 4,200 civilization that has emerged from, like, slowly from the wreckage of a crystal utopia, it looks a whole lot like late <laughs> 20th century Japan. Yeah, it's a little bit on the nose. You're constantly like, oh, well, it's it must be more different in a lot of ways we didn't realize. And then you realize, oh, the main difference is the electric cars only go an hour out of range. Like some of my, some of our electric cars only go an hour out of range. Right. Societally, it's so the same. But I understand why the author did that, because the author is making you absorb a lot of other information. Mm-hmm. And it just kind of accepted like, oh, okay, it's pretty much just like, you know, normal kind of anime Tokyo setting. That's fine. <laughs> other, other than like a few other differences right Um, and the technology they they had to rebuild basically from the ground up after all their tech died so it makes sense that it kind of mirrors the technology existed before crystal tech because that's the references they had right it does that it does fit it's just kind of a bit of an oddity anyway the plot the plot we got two cats (laughs) one cat one cat is artemis we know artemis he's a competent, usually, cat who is kind of a jerk sometimes, but usually he's a functional cat. And then we have his granddaughter, Bendis. And Bendis is a tabby cat. She's a lot younger. And how old is she supposed to be here? She's like two or something, right? She's less than a year old, I believe. She's a kitten. Almost. So. Yeah, she's she's a kitten. She's a, a talking kitten. And <laughs> it's interesting... You know, Artemis makes reference to like, oh, you know, once you're two or so, like, you'll be ready to go out on your own, um, probably, hopefully. 
And that's, you know, very, very cat life cycle, right? Like once you're a, a full adult and like, you know, have been kind of a full grown adult for a while, mm-hmm. then again, Artemis is like, who knows how many thousands of years old. Yeah. Um, anyway, Artemis is still around and he's still, he keeps quiet. He's not like a public figure, even though the Serenity Council, he's a historical figure. Like people know Artemis used to exist, but he, he keeps things secret. And he and Bendis are basically going around looking for reborn Senshi, which is what he's essentially been doing forever, it seems like, because he has faith that they're going to come back in some way at some point. Right. Um, at the meantime, though, he maintains contact with um, Papadopoulos Itsuko, who's actually Hino Rei. I'm saying yeah. it like that because that's what the story does, the last name, then first name in the Japanese way, but <laughs> I'm not going to keep saying it that way. <laughs> yeah, just, just Itsuko. Yeah, we, we can kind of roam around on the plot points here because we don't we don't need to keep track of what happens in each chapter. But yeah, Itsuko, who is Rei, is the only person who like physically survived the fall of Crystal Tokyo. Well, that's not true. Um, other than Pluto, she is the only senshi who physically survived the fall of Crystal Tokyo. And she doesn't have her Mars powers, those burned out, so to speak. But she's just immortal and she runs a gym and she, you know, fakes her own death every 20 years so that she can remain in society and that kind of thing. Like a vampire. <laughs> and so there's kind of friction between Artemis and Bendis, and they have a falling out. A lot of it is about, you know, Bendis chafing under his kind of like parental or grandparental authority, and him not thinking that like she's, you know, capable enough or whatever. And there, but there's also this whole underlying thing that Tori, they don't get to in the first seven chapters explicitly, but it's basically, um, some kind of messed up racist cat prejudice stuff going on. Huh. Yeah, Yeah, they take a very interesting approach throughout the story to the various issues of ethnicity and everything else. And Bendis's his the issues that Artemis has with Bendis is slightly better than the issues that like Itaku has with Beth, but it's Mm -hmm. arguable to what extent. Yeah, Tori, let me just lay it out for you. Mm -hmm. Artemis has a granddaughter. How did that happen? Yeah, and they mentioned that. They're like, did he get with a regular cat? And Bendis seems to think getting with a regular cat would be weird and kind of gross. Yes. So, of course it would be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, but that's But that's what Diana did. Uh, oh, no, actually, the way it worked out was Diana hooked up with a guard in the oh, is that of right? Tokyo. Yep, so Forgot she hooked up with a human guard. And then she had a kid, but the kid couldn't was just a plain ass cat who couldn't turn into a human so he was frustrated and he was like oh i just want to have use my moon cat powers and everything else and live a normal life because implicitly he had the lifespan but was stuck as a cat which is pretty shitty but then he fucked a real cat and had bendis and that's arguably even more shitty so artemis is as her uh great grandfather then yep yeah is that right yeah okay yeah Interesting. Um, and, I mean, I don't think they specifically say that, but maybe they do. And so, so there's some snide comments, or like, you know, I don't know, like some some vibes coming from Artemis that are understandably hard for Bendis to bear. And at the start of the fanfic, she kind of jets and like she's like, whatever, I'll go have my own since she's search. Or like she she's really just blowing off steam. She like runs away from him. Mm-hmm. She, she's also like accidentally drawn some attention from the authorities, and like that's you know been a point of, for them to argue about. But she also just in true Sailor Moon coincidence driving the plot fashion kind of runs smack dab into some like a group of school kids one of whom is a new sailor senshi 
Yeah. And then there's a little bit of a, like, you know, oh, someone touched me, I didn't know who they were, and she gets to, like, play detective, which I like that she does play a lot of detective trying to find the senshi, but she's just a kitten with very little experience, so it's very interesting. Yeah, I I like Bendis as a character a lot more, like, rereading this than I remembered. She's, like, capable, but also just doesn't have experience with a whole lot of things, but also she kind of wants, she doesn't want that to become clear. And so she fakes it a lot of the time. It's pretty fun. Yeah. yeah. Angus has a very good hand on managing to write. Bendis especially as being like, she's sympathetic in that she is actively trying so fucking hard constantly. But at the same time, you can see why other characters get frustrated with her, even when her things work out, because it's so haphazard and it's so unnecessary sometimes. And it's so <laughs> dangerous. Yeah, and and she's so defensive, but you you can be sympathetic to it because she's just this kitten who's been sheltered and and wants to become a grown-up very fast. What I like most, though, is that she does discover the new Sailor Venus, and when she's she trains the new Sailor Venus because she's run away from Artemis and doesn't want to admit that she's not, you know, that she left and did things on her own. She's like, oh, Artemis is on a mission. But when she's training the new Sailor Venus, she trains her, because she has no idea, she trains her to act like a cat. (laughs) And it is the funniest thing ever. It is incredibly charming. The new Sailor Venus is named Macrea Beth, and she's what's called a claver in um, in this setting, which are people who have moved to Crystal Tokyo from enclaves around the rest of the world that survived. Most of the people, not Crystal Tokyo, Third Tokyo. Most of the people in Third Tokyo are ethnically Japanese or whatever the equivalent is, you know, in the year 3,400. Oh, no, sorry, in the year 4,200, of course. But um, but then, you know, other communities that had kind of survived and prospered around the world, once Third Tokyo got going, a lot of people moved to to there. And so she's like blonde. Is she, is she blonde like Venus was? Isn't she? I think she's brown haired. Yeah. Brown haired. And she's kind of an unassuming character most of the time. And a lot of her, like, kind of weird character development comes from, like, lacking confidence in being a senshi. But also, oddly, when she transforms, she gets some kind of, like, buzz. Like, she she acts very differently as Sailor Venus than as not Sailor Venus. Yeah, it's weird. She's kind of an outcast at school at first. <laughs> yeah, the difference between her personality between Venus and... Uh, being normal, standard-ass Beth is actually one of the things that I'm direly hoping, if he explains nothing else, that Angus will go ahead and explain. Because I've got 50 million theories, but who the fuck knows what's true? <laughs> well, the fun thing is the characters also have theories. It's like, it, it could just be that, like, oh, she's she feels less restrained because, like, she feels so powerful and capable in that form. Mm-hmm. Um, at one point, another character muses, like, as Venus, she acts a whole lot like Minako. Like, is... Is, is there, like, some shared soul or, like, personality, like, thing in there somewhere? Like, is something magical going on here? It'd be cool yeah. if it was. <laughs> and, anyway, the first part of the story deals with Beth a lot, because she, you know, she goes off and tries to fight crime, because there's, there's no, like, magical monsters around to fight. Like, why would there be? But, like, she's a magical warrior superhero, so, like, you gotta go do something, right? What do you do? You go stop a, a, a robbery, I guess. Gotta go save a cat from a tree or a couple of children from a burning building. Right. 
But but she goes and stops a robbery, and you know it's on camera and stuff, and that sets off a whole lot of stuff in the setting because the sailor senshi are historical figures, and you know closely closely tied with the immortal god queen that the current government is ruling in the name of, and all this kind of thing. And you know people have all sorts of attitudes or thoughts or opinions or kind of desires of what they're hoping to get like to happen if like the sailor senshi are returning. Not to mention you know the villainy that we'll talk about in a bit. But I've got to say, one of the things the fanfic does well that the original Sailor Moon anime does very, very badly is make it seem like there are people in Tokyo, like other people. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's actually super satisfying because he does a very good job of fleshing out the various minor characters and side characters with relatively little work on his part. They don't they don't eat up a lot of page count, they don't eat up a lot of the scene, but you have a very distinct idea of their personalities. Yeah, I was thinking through this, I was like, it made me think about why do the original Senshi don't have any of their own friends? And I looked at it and I was like, oh yeah, like Ami's, uh, you know, a nerd recluse and Makoto gets in trouble for fighting, so everybody doesn't trust. There's always <laughs> explanations for why they never had any other friends, but it makes, right. makes way more sense that these characters would have their own friends other than the other senshi, especially before they all meet each other. It right, does. the original Sailor Moon, that, there's, a, there's a reason given, but the other reason is that you don't want to have too many other characters floating around, and it means that everybody bonds to Usagi in the way that the Sailor Moon series wants them to, so that Usagi's the center of everybody's lives. Uh-huh. And, <laughs> and Agnes McSpawn has absolutely no horse in that race. And so, like, <laughs> you know, people have various friend groups and family members and things that are relevant in their lives, you know, in various ways. Um, everything feels a lot more interconnected and not kind of just isolated in its own little magical pocket or whatever. It does. It feels like a full world, too, because you're getting all this backstory and then also just this culture that happens around, like, even to the point where it's like, oh, um, later on, one of the senshis, like, sees her brothers on the trendy, popular street. So you get these depictions of the real scenery of the world. And, like, even um, Itsuko lives above a gymnasium, and there's just sometimes descriptions of the gym or, like, what she can see from her apartment above so I just feel like it feels like a full world that's happening. It does. Now, we should probably touch on other main characters and then kind of talk about the plot threads that we want to talk about. Um, the second kind of main senshi character that we get is... Uh, I'm blanking on her name. Because <laughs> I want to say Makoto. Um, yes, yeah. Makoto should be the second senshi that they gain, and she is... Say, uh, she's... She's the reincarnation of Makoto, and she's Mayo Hayashi. What's her name, though? Um, Mio, maybe. Mio, Mio, yes, Mio. And for for unclear reasons that are unclear to the characters, just as much for us, a couple people got saved. Like Neo Queen Strandy was trying to like reincarnate her friends, like her mother did, or whatever, in the Silver Millennium, and seems to have gotten at least one, but. One of the things that we learn later is also that people died at different times. It wasn't all at the same time. There's other stuff going on when, you know, Neo Queen Strandy was trying to use the silver crystal that we don't, you know, learn for a while either. But the point is that in not everyone got reincarnated, but Makoto did. And her name's Mio. And it starts off being like very shortly after Artemis finds her, he restores her memories. 
And that puts her in a really, really weird and distressing situation. <laughs> because, for one thing, she's, you know, like, one of the only ones of her friends who survived Crystal Tokyo, right? But he mm-hmm. also accidentally restores her Silver Millennium memories. And so she's this character who is, in one sense, a teenage girl with a family and with friends and with connections here in the world. And in another sense, she's got some two other lifetimes, one of which is super, super extended, bouncing around in her head. And there's some comedy with that, too. Yeah, the way that he interweaves it to where it's both comedy and it's a source of horror is very good. Because at first I was like, oh, this is this is a little bit funny. And then they start deep diving in one of the chapters into how it's affecting her family and how her family is viewing this and how this change in personality, slight shift in personality brought on by the new insight and maturity brought on by these new memories in addition to the normal fuck-ups. And it's like, oh, this would actually be genuinely horrifying to witness with no explanation. (laughs) Yeah, Tori, I don't think you reached there because it's chapter Mm 8. But, um... She ends up kind of being called out by her family over acting super weird and keeping secrets, and she comes out to her family about, like, actually, I'm the reincarnation of this super important historical figure, and I have, like, two other lifetimes of memories. And oh, her wow. parents react real badly, and it's very distressing. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I, I believe that. Um, it was kind of building, you know. Um, yeah. She has a couple... What She gets very upset at one point, I think. It's either chapter six or... I think it's chapter six. And she's kind of yelling at Artemis on the street and her brothers see her and they see her screaming at a cat. And I was just like, Oh God, this is, this is going to go somewhere. You can't ignore this at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, I feel like it's a good choice to have a couple of character touchstones like her. And it's just her in kind of the main sense she cast, you know, at least as far as we've gone in the story. Um, who is a f- character from Sailor Moon that we are familiar with. But it's it's nice to have one, because it's a, a really interesting spice in the dynamic of the new Senshi team, that, like, she is super experienced and, you know, kind of confident at this stuff. She also gets, you know, slapped back down to level one for metaphysical reasons that are not clear to anybody. Um, you know, she lost all of her levels that she ground out over however many <laughs> thousands of years and she doesn't get her super form and she can only use supreme thunder and all that kind of stuff but that was really narratively necessary i'm sure yeah you can't have her coming in and tanking everything to quite that extent <laughs> I, I think you could explain it by the fact that she's reborn in a new body you know well that's what artemis says it's just like yeah. i guess you know you just kind of lost that whatever yeah Sure. Um, <laughs> for other main characters, in Mio's friend group is Didi. I think that's how you say her name. D H I T I. Yeah, I believe that is. And she turns out to be the new Sailor Mercury. And it's it's interesting. Her personality is not dissimilar to a kind of know-it-all version of Minako from the original. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a yeah. good point. She takes on a fun element of comedic relief that I think is really necessary at the point that she starts getting more of a highlight. Because you need someone, even with her serious contemplative moments, you need someone to kind of lighten the load. She's breezy and jokey and tries to keep things light because she doesn't like things to be heavy. And she's kind of a 
like she's really smart, but she's a dilettante in terms of like studying things. Like she'll study it for as long or practice it for as long as it's, she's interested in it, and then she'll stop. Um, yeah, and, and she's kind of just care like cavalier about that. She's like people tell her she should be focused, and she's like, why? You know, <laughs> and she seems like she's yeah. confident in herself. Right. So she she's not a source of most drama in at least the parts that we've read. She, like you said, Mar, she's more comic relief. Um, but it's not to say that she's a joke character or anything. No, she just gets to have all the good jabs, like calling, uh, <laughs> calling Makoto, or Mio, Sailor Jupiter, calling her Obasan, or, which means grandma, I think. Mm-hmm. Because she's super old. Because she's see. super old, yeah. Just <laughs> little pokey things. And then, of course, Mio gets sort of upset, but then kind of reins it in. And you can, I guess DT is kind of the bonding force between the, you, you know, the, I guess they don't really know much about Venus, but between, like, the the two they have so far. Yeah, she kind of balances everyone out. It's necessary because there's no character like Usagi, who is, like, a central point that everybody is bonded with. Like, Mio and Didi are friends, and later on, um, by the end of this, do we have... Ah, I just read this. (laughs) (laughs) Bethany... Do do we have Mars? Yes, you do. Not uh, and what's her name? What's her name again? The uh, end of chapter seven. No, but okay. Kodama Iku is her name. Iku, right? And Iku's in Beth's friend group, but she's very, very quiet and and withdrawn, and you don't learn much about her situation for a long time. We get like far beyond Uranus in the first seven chapter in the seventh chapter, but. I'm I'm sad that we don't that you know the part that you read Tori doesn't get into her because I really like her. She's like one of my favorite characters in terms of kind of like how she approaches things and what her background is. Uh, the new new Uranus, her name's Suzue, and she's part of a thing that's been in the background for the first seven chapters. By the time you're introduced to her, like you know they find her in, in the middle of a fight basically, and like you know the Uranus symbol glows and she gets her pen from Artemis and all this kind of thing. And she's really freaked out, but she's like, fine, like I'll do it. Um, and at the end of that chapter, you see her go back home and they've got an altar there because she's part of a established setting element called the church of serenity, who rather than, rather than recognizing Neo queen serenity as like the, the magical ruler of like a utopian society that everyone wants to hearken back to. And, you know, definitely, you know, we wish she would come back and all that kind of thing. They're the group that literally worships her as a god, which seems not unreasonable, frankly. <laughs> yeah, you it, you get that at the very end of chapter seven. And I honestly, that's why I wanted to keep reading is I was like, all she does, she goes to a shrine and she marks the crescent moon on her forehead. And then she prays to this goddess. And I'm like, yeah, that's what it is. And I'm really excited to learn more about that. I think I'm going to keep <laughs> reading, honestly. Oh, good. It's we very- can do a chapters eight through 14 episode you know this is the first third chapters we could do a second third of the chapters <laughs> hit me up later about that amada we'll see of course that will be like three times as much reading maybe four yeah the we'll chapters see. just keep multiplying in length <laughs> oh man um, 
Mari, I think we cut you off. Did you have anything to say about Suzue or the Church oh, of Serenity here? I was just here? going to say it's such good payoff because it sets up so many conflicts just in, I would say that's about 200 words total, if not less, at the very end of the chapter. But you can immediately, it pays off everything that we've been learning about the Church of Serenity and the world building of Third Tokyo beforehand. It pays off that scene with uh, Beth and the Looney at the very beginning of the I think about chapter three or four, and it pays off with all the snide comments that people have continuously been making offhand, because by that point, you have a pretty firm idea of where each character will likely fall in terms of this reveal. And you also are aware that you're going to start getting to see into, we've seen a lot of characters who are heavily privileged in the society in various ways, and now you're about to deep dive, by virtue of her point of view, into a section of society that everyone just fucking hates or thinks is weird. <laughs> And I think that was a good point, Mara, saying it's like multiple conflicts introduced just at the end of that chapter by this revelation, because there's the, it puts into context Suzue's like reluctance to do this. She's just been told that she is basically a incredibly important religious figure in her own community. And that's a conflict. And her not necessarily being like ready for that or confident herself is a conflict. You know, it's going to be a conflict because there's this social looking down on her group. And there's going to be conflicts because she's going to be in conversation with these figures that are also, you know, important figures in her religion. Exactly. Like, like Mio, though she's reincarnated, but, you know, Itsuko isn't, <laughs> Artemis isn't. And so, and all those things do pay off. It becomes, you know, major plot threads with her character later on. But what I, the other thing I like about her, though, is that she, you know, her personality is not just her religion. And so she's very, like, as a character, kind of sharp in terms of she sits back and she's very alert and she's very much paying attention to everybody else. Like, I think in the next chapter, chapter eight, they kind of have a first senshi meeting with everybody who's been awakened so far. It's very babysitter's club in terms of kind of like <laughs> yeah. what I was picturing. Uh, Mio is Christy and Didi is Claudia. <laughs> and Suzue is definitely, um, what's her name? Marianne. No, I was going to say that she, well, she's kind of like Marianne. She's kind of like uh, the one with diabetes. Oh, Dawn, <laughs> yes. You're right, Dawn. How do y'all remember the names of the girls from the Babysitter's Club? Graphic novel adaptations, obviously. <laughs> oh my gosh. I haven't read those books since I was like eight, no, six. <laughs> I don't know. Okay, but have you read the comics versions? Because they're really good. No, I haven't. I guess have I'll you read check it out. By by that author, what's her name? Um, why am I blanking on this? I should know this. I have children. Um, <laughs> no, the reason you don't know it is because you have children. You're too busy to remember anymore. things. I'm a teacher and I have children. I should know this. Um, oh, man, Babysitter's Club should be tattooed to the back of your eyelids by this point. <laughs> <laughs> well, Raina Telgemeier should be. That's the name. Raina oh. Telgemeier. Tori, have you read any comics by Raina Telgemeier? She's like real big in kind of the elementary school graphic novel scene. I'm sure that I have, but probably not retained. Uh, um, anyway. Oh, oh no, I know. I know who you're talking about. And I have seen the Babysitter's Club comic. I just haven't read it. Right. Well, that's next on the reading list, clearly. Obviously. <laughs> Is that fan fiction? Can we call it fan fiction? It's not because she is paid by the estate oh, to right, do it. Right. Okay. Anyway, back to Sailor Moon. 
I, I was just going to say, I like the scene when it's actually like really long time building to get all those characters together in the same scene. And then it's just them kind of like having a meeting, bouncing off each other, sharing information. And I like that Suzue is very like, um, very intelligent in terms of like what she's trying to like absorb and retain. She really pays attention to other characters in a way that nobody else does. Yeah, she's she. I think she's one of the most analytical characters in it, and it's yeah very refreshing compared to the others because they don't quite. They're aware of the other of the rest of the cast in various ways, but she's more prone to actually breaking it down and being able to deep dive. It's also very well done because there's even though all these characters are new characters, they're not just rehashes of the old characters, except Mio, who is. Um, there's kind of an implication that everyone has something about them that makes them suitable to be the senshi who they are, right? Mm-hmm. And so Iku, even though she's quiet and withdrawn, there's all this stuff about her having this, like, fiery power or, like, passion that she keeps really, really quashed down for reasons, again, that are not gotten into for a very long time. And, you know, for Didi, she's not smart in the same way that Ami is, but being very intelligent is still, like, a thing about her that is... Um, that's kind of supposed to be kind of like the Mercury connection, I feel like. Yeah, and willing to learn new things, too, for her. Yeah. Which makes her, like, go into learning the computer. For Suzu, I feel like the connection they're trying to draw is kind of this deep faith about something. And for Haruka, like, that faith is kind of takes the form of, like, you know, it's so vitally important. The mission. The mission is what Haruka believes in, right? Oh, right. And every, everything... Nothing comes before the mission and doing what needs to be done. And for Suzue, she's genuinely devout in her religion. And, like, that's kind of the form it takes for her. What would you yeah. say about... Oh, sorry. Go on, Mar. Oh, no, that was it. I was just saying, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I keep cutting you off, so, like, feel free to talk over me if that happens. Okay. Um, let's see. I was going to say, oh, yeah, the whole thing with Monaco and Beth. Um... What is that, their connection? Like, how are they similar? Well, for whatever reason, when she's Venus, she's very Minako. Right. And I don't think that's a lot less clear to us as readers, I feel like. Mm. What, like you said, Mar, where the author's going with that is still not clear, even through, like, the whole thing that is published so far through chapter 14. I think part of it is that if it doesn't turn out that she's, like, if it doesn't turn out that Mio's whole thing with Hebe, where she got back those memories, is some sort of foreshadowing to uh, Venus and Beth, I think what it comes down to is that Beth is continuously mentioned to watch the cartoon version of the uh, Sailor Moon series constantly and to know all these details, et cetera, et cetera, with the heavy implication that she used to obsess at watch it, obsess. Oh my goodness, that was a word tangle. <laughs> that she used to watch it obsessively to an extent. So I think along with how restrained and intentionally restricted uh, and repressed that Beth tends to keep herself, I think it's mostly has a decent probability of it turning out, oh, she just does things on complete impulse and doesn't think it through or anything else, and she acts this way because this is the way she wants to act, and she just doesn't feel comfortable with it. And maybe that connection, I hadn't thought about it until just now, but that kind of desire to be a hero, like kind of maybe ties in with the Sailor V sort of background of Minako. Mm-hmm. You also just mentioned the, the anime version of Sailor Moon in this <laughs> setting. 
which is called Queen Serenity and Her Senshi, and they keep talking about it, like, as a background thing. And we haven't mentioned it yet, but in between chapter 10 and 11, the author wrote a script format, you know, episode script of Queen Serenity and Her Senshi, and it's it's there as part of the fanfic. It has nothing to do with anything in the plot. It's <laughs> Yeah. I have to applaud that level of sheer self-indulgence, but I think I've read it once in all of my rereads, and then my eyes just go blank if I try to reread it again. I'm like, oh god, I didn't sign up to read the script to a children's television series. The thing is, it's not even a children's television series in the style of Sailor Moon. It's very distinctly a bad 80s action cartoon. Yeah! (laughs) Like, that is designed to sell toys also. Yeah, that's what it is. You can read that script and you can almost imagine like the weird motorcycle looking plastic toys that you would (laughs) see in the toy store to go with it. It was definitely, Uh yeah, it's definitely kind of that, that whole 90s thing where that was like a lot of cartoons were just toy, toy selling mechanisms. (laughs) You know, as a kind of lead in. We've talked about just, you know, oh, the Senshi that show up, right? But there's so many plot threads going on in this fanfic. To lead into one of them, I'd like to say, in this reread, I realized that this incarnation of Sailor Moon, the Sailor Moon 4200, owes a whole lot more to American superhero genre stuff than the original Sailor Moon does. Um, Because among the other plot threads that are going on, things like how the populace regards the appearance of superheroes in their midst is a big deal. The relationship between them and the government, including, you know, the parts of the government that are maybe suspicious or interested in looking into them, the parts of the government that are secret evil conspiracies. Right. You know, it's all very American superhero stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, the the preoccupation with keeping secret identities secret, which they never have to really work hard on in original Sailor Moon. But in this, even though it makes explicit the whole, like, kind of magical disguise shielding, you can never recognize them when they're transformed kind of thing even then various groups kind of learning their secret identities or coming close to that it's all a much bigger deal it's a very kind of american superhero sort of thing um yeah i would almost say it's more of a preoccupation with the real world than it is with the you know fantasy that's that's going on the fantastical world like sailor moon is more like all the conflict comes from fighting you know, people mm-hmm. from evil other planets and their whole history and future and past and future. It's all wrapped up in those characters' magical experiences rather than what's happening around in the actual world of Tokyo. Yeah, he's got a very he's got a very set focus on it feels like when you're reading the fan fiction almost, that at every point that somebody would say, Well, how would this work in real life? That he's like, Oh, I've addressed this and pushing <laughs> right. forward the idea on the table. Which is and very sometimes satisfying. the answer is it doesn't work very well in real life. <laughs> <laughs> right. But he still talks about it. I just I find that so satisfying. And I love the whole evil government plot that's going on in the background. Yeah, let's talk about that. So, Tori, what's your understanding of the like evil government situation here? Okay, so it's a little bit like back and forth at first. The first thing that happens with the government is that they're trying to track magical cats, but no one knows why. So someone who attends Itsuko's gym is recruited to do that. And there's a lot of back and forth around that. But then by the time you get to the reading we did, there's 
Um, there's like the chairman has to do this weird thing where he submerges his hands in acid or something. And there's this Mm -hmm. whole talk of, um, you know, this, um, ritual. It's like, uh, what do they call it? Indoctrination or initiation. Initiation. And the last piece we get from that is that, um, one of the operatives called 12, because a lot of the secret operatives have numbers, um, is initiated and turned into basically some sort of negaverse villain um, with a crystal on her wrist. Let's back up a little bit to the higher level there. Yeah, it's a little, sorry, it's a little confusing for me sometimes. I was like, I don't know all the branches of government, but this is strange. (laughs) What, you didn't read the appendices? Oh, there's appendices. I'm I'm joking, but yes, there are appendices. (laughs) Oops. Maybe that would have helped. No, no, no worries. Yeah, you, you mentioned two, what are really two separate plot threads, and we'll get back to the cat search if we want to. But at the higher level, the government is run in departments, and the heads of each department are part of a council, which is the Serendi Council. Right. And like, what is it, 11 out of the 13 or 14 members of the council have been initiated into kind of the secret inner oh, circle. right. Those are the which, members of the council. My bad. Right. And... That initiation means that you basically get marked by the big bad, who appears to be the same entity that destroyed Crystal Tokyo. Um, and you have to do what it says because it can, you know, take control of you directly if it needs to, um, once you've done the initiation. But, you know, it's, it appears to be a devil's bargain trade-off where it's like, well, that's what you do to be at this higher level of government and have the worldly power and control over things. Yeah. It's. It was unclear to me how connected the police force and the council were, but I'm seeing that they might be on completely different pages. Well, yeah, there are two separate plot threads in that at some point, the government at the council level sent down a thing where it's like, find, you know, this cat that there was a sighting of, which is Bendis, that has a round mark on its forehead. And that got passed down to, like, much lower people in government who have no idea, like, the larger context. And there is a whole plot there that follows them. But there's also the high-level government stuff, which is the level at which they are creating deadly killer, um, you know, <laughs> crystal monsters to draw out more senshi. Oh, right. We didn't even talk about the crystal monsters. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff here. There's a lot of stuff. It is pretty jam-packed. So there's crystal markers. It's It's fun in that kind of, like, unexpected consequences way where... The government has no purpose to these crystal monsters other than having them fight the Senshi to see what they're capable of, and because it becomes clear that the evil big bad entity behind them wants all of the Senshi out. Like, all of them to be, you know, to reveal themselves and, like, be reborn and, like, be out in the open before crushing them all or something. Using them, destroying them again, or using some them for some sort of plan that is unclear. So it's all Sailor Venus's fault for, you know, going out and trying to fight a robber once. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, Is there anything we want to say about kind of the the way the fights or the monsters are done in this story? Not terribly. The monsters are one of the things that it's like, they're very satisfying in that usually you can, the fight scenes are v- very well constructed and the monsters are very satisfying but I could not tell you a single damn thing about the monsters past the <laughs> scenes that they appear in. 
No. I I, I say... Oh, go on. Oh, no, I was going to say, in a way, they're kind of the most Sailor Moon formulaic thing, even though the author jettisons the, like, weird theming for the most part that, you know, Sailor Moon anime monsters had. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, like, they fight a monster, they use magical attacks, they eventually destroy it. He does a lot of work making them intimidating, almost too intimidating in some ways, because... You, I mean, you, the effect is clear, which is that the, the big bads are toying with them, basically, or, you know, like, not taking them seriously. That is all very explicit. Mm-hmm. But it does kind of make me... I never really feel reading this that that the Sailor Senshi are making much headway in terms of, like, actually being in a position to f- take to fight and win the big bad. Yeah. And I mean, I'm sure that's intentional. It seems very very likely that the story will end in some depressed partially from the excellent spoiler reveal of the entire <laughs> chapter list with names like Holocaust and Doomsday. But and ashes. And <laughs> ashes. You can't forget. The last chapter is called Ashes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, perfect. It sets up your expectations along with the fact the characters don't seem to ever particularly improve much in the responses to the battles and in the consequences they're facing. And Um, uh, I did appreciate about the battles though. Like the first one I liked the other ones. I couldn't tell you as much about one was a dressmaker's dummy. And that's kind of funny, but um, the first one, that was the the author giving that little nod to the Sailor Moon themed monsters. Right. Right. And then, but the first, why is it, (laughs) why is it in a dressmaker's shop? What's the point here? It looks like a mannequin. (laughs) Yeah. I thought that was pretty humorous. But yeah, the first one is like, sets the scene for how they can work together because I think it's DT who's the one who calls attention to the eye. Mercury calls attention to the eye, the third eye, and tells Jupiter where to aim the lightning. And it's kind of this nice, like, little cooperative teamwork that they start to have. The other fights kind of seem to go basically the same. Like, someone figures something out and then they work together, which is just kind of Sailor Moon fight, you know? I've got to say, this, you know, there's an issue writing Sailor Moon combats, which are not interesting to begin with, right? <laughs> but it's like, at this point, you know, like, Dee Dee has an attack. It's called Icicle Spear. As an aside, um, I feel like that name needs one more weird word to make it make less sense, to make it sound like a Sailor Moon attack. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because it is actually... It's a little straightforward. Yeah, it is it's an Icicle Spear. a little spear. too straightforward. It's like, you can't just have an Inferno. It needs to be a sensitive Inferno. You can't just... <laughs> You know, it can't just be, like, a burning flame. It needs to be a burning mandala or whatever, right? Like, mm-hmm. Icicle Sphere is just lacking a little something. This is true. But but my point is that, what it means is that, in fights, she's got two tools. One is her brain, and one is Icicle Sphere. And so, like, there's some spamming of Icicle Sphere, you know? Like, there's some spamming of Supreme Thunder. It's like, that's what they've got. And it's, you know, it works better for some people than for others. Because, for example, the one attack that Venus is able to use is Love Me Chain. And Venus Love Me Chain has more than one application. You can do more with it in a fight scene. Yeah, there's actually even some discussion early on of why she learned that attack and not um, her first attack. Uh, But they they just have this, I think the only thing explained is it develops differently for different people or something. But I do feel like there's this mystery with, with Venus a little bit. Um, I don't yeah. Sailor Mercury never had an icicle spear attack, so that's also weird. Um, well, but, but that's one of the cool things is that some people 
use attacks that the original senshi use, and yeah. some people don't. And so, like, Suzue uses an attack called Music of the Spheres in place of, um, in place of world shaking, which kind of still has the themes of kind of like air or celestialness, but kind of sounds more, um, cosmic or, you know, uh, I, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is. Like, I like that that is not predictable in all of this. Right. Between all the characters. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I think it's what makes things more interesting. Because, like, choosing, you know, to have them have different attacks, but also have them be, like, more practical in ways. Like, the chain is more practical. The spear is more interesting, you know? Yeah. I, but I just mean, like, they don't have weapons. Sometimes the fight scenes are a little bit fireball spammy. Because that's just, like, what they have to do. Or, you know, that, or trying to dodge monster attacks, because you can't really punch these things. Yep. <laughs> but the author the author works very hard. I don't want to be too down on it. <laughs> I think the most striking scenes are the scenes in terms of combat, and the ones that, like, stand out in my memory the most are the ones where it gets less, fo- less on the monsters, but where he gets very creative in how the characters involve the environment and their attacks and i think he does that pretty often so it ends up like i was a little bit down on the monsters but the overall combat is still satisfying because things like venus swinging across the i believe it's called an opal police drone swinging off of that with her love me chain is baller as fuck (laughs) yeah (laughs) that's that's actually a really cool scene to begin with because like it's coming out of a whole plot thread where beth is really not sure she wants to keep doing the Sailor Venus thing because, like, the one time she talks to, like, some police officers after, like, hey, I, I caught this, you know, burglar or something for you or something like that, one of them is really aggressive and, like, who do you think you are horning in on, like, you know, all this stuff? And one of them is a Church of Serenity member who wants to worship her, and she's really freaked out by all this. And so that scene you're talking about with, like, swinging off of the opal is coming off of her deciding to intervene as Sailor Venus again, and it's mm-hmm. not because of crime, it's because of a burning building. And it's a very dramatic scene. Right. Especially since, like, she works her way up through a flaming building with her, you know, magical senshi being tough protection. <laughs> and then she has to, like, leap down with a couple of kids. And it's, like, all very intense and rough on her physically. And then there's still more people up there. And she's like, well, you know, it's kind of a very also classic superhero thing right like spider-man does that all the time where it's like i need to push myself physically because people's lives are on the line you know i and i think i like this oh go on (laughs) you can go on i'll remember what i was saying okay well i was just gonna say that i like this because there's a couple crime fighting moments that harken back to sailor v and i actually thought those fights were way more interesting well not fights even because one's saving people from a fire those scenes are more interesting than the monster fights because she does do cool like cat moves too that ben just taught her mm-hmm. and it's always really funny because they'll show the observers like why is that girl crouching like a cat you know like the gunman's <laughs> like left on, she left on the gunman like a cat and started pawing his face oh no or like used his paws it was like buffeting his face with her paws and then it was like oh no hands why did i think paws or something like that <laughs> yeah, that simulated what I was going to say. It's super satisfying in that sense because it's those scenes, the scenes where the combat manages to define the characters in various ways are like some of the most satisfying because I wouldn't have necessarily like extrapolated just from the 
fact Bendis is training Venus, oh, she moves like a fucking cat. She's batting <laughs> people. She's not punching them. She's like fucking slapping people like a small feline. Oh no. <laughs> it it also and it's also just a really good character point of Bendis's, like we were saying, of kind of showing her inexperience. It's mm-hmm. like she doesn't, she doesn't talk to humans, she doesn't interact with humans. The only context she has for how to do things is how a cat does them. And so that's, you know, how she tries to tell Beth how to do things. Exactly. It's like, what, 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 you can't jump up a wall? Well, let's work on that first. That's, that's <laughs> basics. Right. And then she's frustrated by it, too. Bendis is frustrated because, you know, she's, yeah, like you said, she doesn't talk to humans. So she's like, human, why don't you move like a cat? What's wrong with you? <laughs> right. And it's it's actually a good example of Beth and Bendis' relationship, too, in, like, an understated way, because that could be pretty distressing to constantly being browbeat by a cat on how you don't move like a cat. <laughs> right. But instead, Beth is just like, oh, I love Bendis. This is fine. We're going to learn and do this together, fighting like a cat. <laughs> Yeah, it, like the narration is good there. This is in the first couple chapters, you know, like, it's really, it's it's good, like you pointed out, Mark, because like, she'll think in her head, she'll just be like, you know, it is frustrating how late Bendis has me out training. And, and I don't think she fully understands what humans do. But you know what, this is still cool. <laughs> <laughs> now, we've touched on the major main plot things going on in this first seven chapters of the fanfic. Again, this is one of those stories where there's then like another 20 subplots we haven't talked about. I don't think we need to talk about all of them, but I'd like to ask, are there any other subplots or, you know, points in the story or characters that you want to talk about specifically? This is from a little bit later chapters than the ones that you read, Tori, primarily, I believe. But I really do. I always slightly forget in between readings of this fanfic how much weirdly apocalyptic Lovecraftian style bullshit is going on with this government council. And Angus McSpoon is so good at writing horror. He's very skilled at this. But at the same time, my brain always just glosses over it until we're getting to melted hands and people being locked in basements and shit. And I'm like, oh. That was part of that initiation thing. Yeah, it was like she was Mm -hmm. just in prison for a really long time. And then brought into this cold room where this, like, door was radiating supreme coldness. And then she was taken over by the master's mind and controlled. And it, it was it was a neat scene. It was cool. It, Everything about the council is effectively really, really creepy. Yeah. It is. And it builds up so nicely because you start off saying, well, the government's probably going to be evil because that's always how it goes in these stories. And then it's gradually like, oh, they're not bad people. They're cultists. yeah but the best thing is that other than the chairman and the person who gets the second initiation which turns them into a direct vessel of the big bad Mm -hmm. who they call the master other than them everyone else is pretty horrified when things go down too like they you know signed up for what is effectively some kind of like you know fraternal lodge sort of thing like you get initiated in the government and you know like that and then you get, like, more access to power. And it's like, what do you have to do? Nothing, really, because there's a master there, down there, who never actually wants anything. Mm-hmm. Except that right now, it actually does, because the sailors essentially have returned. And so, you know, at various points in here, as far as I've read, like, they say, like, oh, well, you know, we need to, 
well, like we need to worry about like you know our foreign relations and like we're making sure like the economy, like the stock market is you know really unstable because people aren't sure what's going on with these monsters and senshi. And the master directly tells us like, I don't give a fuck about what's going on with the stock market, and you're all going to do exactly what I say. Right. Right, and the fact that they're so horrified over this, they signed <laughs> up, and like maybe they were told, "Yeah, technically, you're signing your soul over to the devil, but it's fine. You never in practice that never matters, right? Right, yeah. right. <laughs> and now they're confronted. Yeah, no, I like the element too. There's a parallel with the um the guy who signed on to just like be a government spy, civilian spy. You just take yeah, a class. Yeah, you're absolutely and you right. The, the like irregular who Yeah. And he gets activated and he's like, You never get activated. That never happens. <laughs> and it's good because that started off, you know, it kind of shows that things are shifting, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's affecting everyone at all levels. Yeah, absolutely. I've also like to say, in terms of that like horror, like I said, I got uh halfway through Crystal Fall, which is the flashback to Crystal Tokyo. Mm-hmm. And geez, that scene with Princess Usagi, you know, formerly Chibiusa, um, like going down into the tunnel is oh. like really bad. Yeah, it fucking is. That entire crystal, the crystal fall is just the thick kind of like before that it's moderately light. It keeps hinting at all these terrible things that have occurred and everything else. And it's gradually slipping towards being more dark and grim. But Crystal Fall is where it's turned from a slip and slide to throwing you directly off the cliff. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Well, now I have something to look forward to. (laughs) Being thrown off a cliff. (laughs) Don't worry. There's not really padding at the end, but you might feel like there is. As long as there's not some, like, Lovecraftian cold horror monster waiting to eat me at the bottom. (laughs) (laughs) No promises. No promises. (laughs) Um, Let's see. Other plot threads. Uh, Pluto's around, and she's similarly immortal, and like Itsuko, she does not have her senshi powers, it appears. But she does still, like, see... She has garnet future sight from Steven Universe, basically. Kind Um, of, right? Oh, yeah, I guess she basically does. She can see everything, kind of. Well, she can see probabilities. She yeah. does cool things. Like, we're introduced to her in the scene where, like, the government has gotten some kind of, like, you know, information that she wants wiped out about, like, Bendis or something. And so she just, like, walks into the building, acts like she's supposed to be there, like, times it perfectly so she can, like, go in the elevator while somebody else is pressing the elevator because she doesn't have a key card. She does this kind of thing. Like, you know, walks in, destroys the files, walks out. And what I was going to praise is that you know, Pluto's a character who has no character in the original, basically. Nothing to work with, really. Um, but McSpawn works with her here in a couple of effective ways. When The whole time she's doing this, there's this constant refrain in her mind where she's like, I don't have my time staff, but that's fine. This way's just as good. Who needs a time staff anyway? <laughs> I didn't need a time staff. I didn't want a time staff in the first, you know, exactly. I mean, she's overcompensating. Yeah. It, 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 it's not as overdone as I was just doing it. But, like, clearly she's kind of, she has this Mm self-talk that is belying how she actually feels about this situation. (laughs) Right. And she also gets to be kind of a badass, you know, and and just because of her future sight. But I I, I appreciate that, too. There's also, like, a similar touch-in on her where she's just, like, she, she's not happy about things. She, she hasn't been happy about anything for a very long time, but she's just propelled by this 
grim sense of duty, um, which also seems on point. Yeah, it's super satisfying to see because it's such a good contrast against uh, Ray's everything that's going on because even when ray tries to sympathize with her she's like oh you've you've been you've been depressed over all of this for 700 years i've been depressed over for twenty thousand. don't call me yeah yeah, that was was what i was gonna bring up is that she just gets like a smackdown line where ray is like or itsuko is just like um so now that i've been around for 700 years i feel like i might have an idea of what your life of what is you're like. Going and she goes, multiply that by 20, and then maybe you might. And then, of course, Ray <laughs> being Ray gets to feel kind of, like, upset about it. She's like, how dare she? But it's a really good <laughs> smackdown. Yeah, I'm sure she doesn't get many chances to, like, be passive-aggressive towards anybody. <laughs> and so, when... I guess that's more actually actively aggressive. The line's great. Yeah, she's like, oh yeah, multiply that by 20. And Ray's like, it goes like, that's how long you've been alive? And Pluto's like, no. But it will give you a sense of the scale. <laughs> <laughs> That's so good. I did also like the the Jupiter and versus or Makoto and Ray plot too. Yeah, tell us about it. They had like an argument seven hundred years ago. Well, no, longer than that. But they seven hundred ten. Yeah. So they well, no, wasn't <laughs> it like they didn't speak to each other for twenty five years or something? Oh, I, I, it was 10 in my mind. You might be right, 25 years. Anyway, they're so old that, you know, they've lived for thousands of years, so it could very well not, 25 years maybe not feel that long. But anyway, they got over a fight over something really little, and they didn't speak, and now there's this whole conflict because Makoto's reawakened as Makoto with all her memories. Itsuko's like, I'm aware of that. I got over it because it's been 700 years. And Artemis is talking to her, and he's just like, so why not go talk to her? Whatever, right? She could use a friend. And she's like, Artemis, you dummy. It hasn't been 700 <laughs> years for her. Um, yeah. Uh, so they, they and, do hash it out, kind of. It's just... That argument you mentioned, also, it seems very real for, like, these people who have been friends for thousands of years, and especially for, like, two, you know, strong-willed, kind of stubborn personalities. Yeah. Where it's like, who knows what the argument was about originally? But it became about hashing out long-held resentments and saying incredibly hurtful things to the other one. There's a good line about it that's two people as two people could they hurt each other as only two people could hurt each other who were had been so close or something of that effect or had known each other for so long. Like mm-hmm. something around the fact that you know it really was about how much they cared for each other, but they were fighting over things they never worked out and it turned into a physical fight which i think would close the door for both of them to make amends they're both stubborn yeah that entire thing is one aspect of how well he manages to make the characters seem very aggressively human but in an older way than their canon counterparts because it's such on one hand it's like very petty and immature of them. But on the other hand, it's so petty and immature in exactly the way that a lot of adult spats tend to go. You just, it starts off over something small and then it just keeps building. Yeah. And then it's about what the other person said. <laughs> you know, it's not about the original topic. Right. The right. original topic is, I don't even believe that they, he tells us what the original topic was. There, uh, I he, mean, he says, if he does, I forgot it already, just like they did, or whatever. <laughs> he says that the root of the, like, the reason they first started fighting was because it was literally like Ray beat Makoto to the punchline of a joke she wanted to tell. 
time. Yeah. So. <laughs> that's a, that's some organic homegrown pettiness right there. Right. And you would think these characters would be more mature, but like at the same time, you take a look at the personalities from the show. This shows us that there's still at least similar people to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, you know, how you want to portray living forever is kind of up to the author. But True. a, a, you know, 50-year-old is not necessarily twice as mature as a 25-year-old, you know? <laughs> so it probably does not just keep rising until you're like a saint who can handle everything really well. Probably not. And if you think about it, you know, it's sort of like, the you know, if you're roommates with someone, you might not get along with them as well as if you were just friends. They've spent a lot of time together. <laughs> exactly. All right. Anything else we want to talk about specifically before we start to close this out? Nothing in particular for me. I think we covered everything that I would have addressed. (laughs) Yeah, given, because we're doing only the first part of the story um, through chapter seven, I think I've hit on the main things also, even though I slipped into chapters eight and nine a couple (laughs) of times. Well, it's good for me because I got a little preview of what's to come, which inspired me to keep reading. Good. You know what? Speaking of keeping reading, there's a couple things I haven't mentioned that I'd like to. Go for it. At the start of every chapter is a summary, an extensive summary. And it's a good idea because it's really easy to skip if you want to. But there's also just so much going on in this fanfic. Sometimes it's more useful if, like, you didn't quite get what the point of something was or, like, where you didn't get, you didn't quite understand a plot point. He's usually pretty good about, like, saying what the main thing you were supposed to take away was. Yes, I think that's actually, like, like you said, it's super useful in, like, long fix, but also in terms of this, it's always nice with something that's juggling so much information to have the author explicitly say, because text can be up to so much interpretation, have the author explicitly say, no, this is what you're supposed to get from this. Yeah, he's not trying to confuse you at any point. (laughs) There's a few... There's a few points where, like, he's not telling you things and things are mysteries, but it's supposed to be clear that that's a mystery, not just you missing it or whatever. Mm-hmm. Right. And I like that every one of those repeats the same information about, like, what happened to the world, because I wasn't, like, fully clear on that until I'd heard it, like, a couple of times. <laughs> he does not, however, say what grade the characters are in or their blood type <laughs> or um, their age. Which should probably be key for a Sailor Moon standard opening, right? It should, it should. He's falling down on <laughs> his job right there. <laughs> well, it's not from any character's perspective, I suppose. <laughs> we'll give it a pass. <laughs> and along the same lines, there are actually four appendices, like I did mention. There's one about the government of Japan, the world of 4200, there's a timeline, there's a who's who. Of those, I would say the who's who is perhaps most useful. Um, as a reference, because he, like, you, you, he's not hiding important information in there. You don't need to read about the government of Japan. You get what you need to know. But you might forget, like, uh, wait, who's Nanako again? Like, I, right. I don't remember. Yeah. Or whatever. That's true. And the character list also doesn't, like, give your whole life story. It's just like, wait, basically, who are they? What do they look like? What's their personality or whatever? It's good. That's my comments for this fanfic. It's good. <laughs> it is good. And, and honestly, we can start talking about praise, but I feel like I've given so much praise already. I'm trying to find something 
Like, I just think it is good in general. It's really well done. (laughs) Okay, well, let's try to dredge up some criticism. Let's try to balance out, you know, our reporting here and provide both sides of an issue. What do we not like about the story or think could have been done better? I think he really could use an editor. And I say this knowing from his notes that he, I believe he said he has two betas, but he could use an editor just to gently trim out some of the fat from the story because I enjoy all of it. I enjoy obnoxiously long things all the time, but it just adds more and more to his plate. I feel like in the same sense of say JRM in terms of he's got so many plot threads on the table. And the impulse as an author is to figure out ways to neatly tie up those plot threads. But you also want to finish your story at some point. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a good point. And I I kind of agree with that. Um, I think the appendices are a nice touch, but having to refer to an appendix shouldn't be, and I'm not saying it's necessary, but the fact that it's helpful means that maybe some of the information in the fanfic is getting lost in the tussle. Like some things could be repeated more and some things could be taken away to kind of streamline it. I think that's absolutely the case. Yeah, earlier on you're introduced to a lot of characters at once and it can be difficult, or not all at once, but in short order. And it can be a little tricky. And I get what you're saying, Mar, about the fat in the story. I did notice some amount... And, you know, like, we're we're reaching here for, like, things to complain about here. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But there's some amount of a scene that's serving to establish something that has already been established. Yeah. And I I see that in some of the conversations among the friends groups or, like, scenes with Mio and, like, her past life slipping through or some of the stuff with the the whole plot we barely touched on with the the irregular kind of, like, police-type division monitoring the cat and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Like, it, that sort of coming back around to points serves, I feel like, more of a purpose in a, a serial where it's like each one is a contained episode of like the, of kind of a similar length and you just want to like touch base that, you know, everyone remembers that this certain thing is going on or something. Yeah. But despite the summary at the start of each chapter, these are really, really interconnected chapters. They're not... It's not really a serial, except in the sense that it came out serially, which I guess is the literal definition. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Because to follow Tori's point on the appendixes and stuff, I do remember the first time that I read this fic, and I did literally go and print out the appendices and everything to reference while I was reading (laughs) because I couldn't keep the characters straight. I could tell that was the hardest part, the characters. (laughs) Um, I also noticed that the timeline here, which I have not opened in a very long time, it's not about the timeline of the world. Oh, what year did this happen in? What year did this happen in? It is literally on Thursday, the 12th of June, Artemis and Bendis argue and separate. Right. It's, it's the events of the story day by day so that you can remember how long it's been since various things happened. Yeah, and having just churned through the first nine chapters of this fic, it does not feel like this fic takes place over uh, barely two months. Less, yeah. It looks like it's the 12th of June to the 27th of July at the end of chapter 14. My goodness. (laughs) Well, maybe that's the end of chapter 13, actually. 
Uh, maybe that's the end of chapter 12. I don't know exactly where that goes through, but yes. Anyway. <laughs> I also just realized that the Beth situation is addressed by chapter 13 and 14, kind of what's going on with her. Hmm. Um, they do they do get there. I had just forgotten that because I haven't read those in a really, really long time. <laughs> oh, good. Good to know for the future. <laughs> Something to look forward to. <laughs> okay. Anyway, yeah, it's it's hard for me to find complaints, but I'm also biased because this is just a personal favorite. Um, one of the ones that I really remember well from when I was most into fan fiction. <laughs> yeah, this is like, I had a brief period when I was in college where I was like, oh, I'll just print out my favorite fan fiction and put them in a book binding. And this mm-hmm. is one of the ones I was like, yeah, absolutely. I'm going to do this in one book and then I can do the second half of the everything after the interlude in a second book when it comes out. Mm. It is a lovely, yeah, yeah, that <laughs> I think I lost that somewhere the first half and a, a move somewhere. But you know what? It worked out because now I can redo it when the second half comes out in wow. 20 years. <laughs> it's got to be a lot of pages of printing. <laughs> oh, it probably killed a good small sized grove of trees. I fully believe that. <laughs> My little disbelieving sound there was that, like, there's no way you would fit the second half of this story in a single book. No. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how many books it's going to have to be, but more than one, I think. Yeah, that maybe, maybe a good, nice six. Yeah. I, I guess you can have a really thick book, too. Anyway. Yeah. So I guess let's just move on to praise. Let's, we don't have to torture ourselves here. <laughs> um, the, like you said, we've praised a whole lot of things. So why don't we just come back around to, like, what do you like most about the fanfic? I most like the world building, because in some ways, Third Tokyo is pretty much very similar to uh, First Tokyo and basic anime setting in a lot of ways. But the various little ways that it differs is very interesting to me, because it largely differs in ways that benefit the story. And I also think excuse me, sorry, hiccup. I also think that he handles the diversity that he's created in the various forms of the interweaving of society and how various forms of oppression and everything else are under taking place. And he's made it interesting in serving the narrative and how it presents in new and unusual ways. Because I wouldn't necessarily say like, oh, well, yeah, of course the Japanese population would be prejudiced against the non-Japanese population because they came from bubble cities in a different part of the apocalyptic <laughs> yeah. world. Uh, I, I have to agree with that, that I like the world that's being built. I really want to see more of it, but I feel like, I don't know, that we will. And part, you know, because, and part of that is that it's being, the information's being metered out at a relatively good pace. There's no info dumping, but you get these pieces of the world and they come together super nicely. So I really like that about the story. I certainly agree. And I could also say something about kind of the character work where all the characters have definitely clearly their own arcs, you know, their own plot or character arcs going on. Mm -hmm. It's fairly deftly handled. But I guess what I really want to say is that it just feels so fresh and satisfying to read as a Sailor Moon fan, because it's like you're getting another Sailor Moon series. Totally. And not, and you know, because it's so divorced from the original characters and like time frame, but not completely divorced, it's, it doesn't feel exactly like an extension or like just a rehash. And also because the author is so willing to kind of 
you know, obviously it's not original tone or original format or original style in any way, but a lot of kind of the core things that you like about the series are there. A lot of the cosmology, a lot of the like, you know, teen girls handling cool magical powers and fighting monsters, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of all of that sort of thing is just there and it feels fresh and fun and new to read. The only other story I can compare it to in that sense, Tori, is Children of an Elder God, if you remember that yeah. so long ago, where because the author was taking Evangelion and, you know, doing Cthulhu mythos, but like changing every, changing everything about the setting, like nothing was the same. Every, there was things that were similar and things that were dissimilar, but it felt like you were just kind of getting another Evangelion, except, you know, in a very satisfying, new, fresh feeling way. Right. Right. But this is even more so, you know, because you're you're getting some of the same characters, you're getting the history, and you're getting kind of a new story retold similarly to the old story. It's it's cool. It works very well. All right. Any last comments then? This somehow is longer in practice than I remembered it being, and it was very long in my head, so that's pretty impressive. (laughs) Yeah, it's a lot of work. I don't. I think we got to give the author props for all the work put into this story. Hmm. I didn't check the word count for the whole series, but it's over a hundred thousand for chapters one through seven, uh, which is what we read. Well, and that's novel length. Oh Wait, yeah. And the chapters it's, just get longer. It's one hundred and forty-five thousand words for chapter seven alone. Oh damn! Wait. Wait, what? That can't be true. That's what it says. It says 18,000 for the first one, 41 for the second, 66, 67, 61, 105, 129, 145. Where does it say that? It says 18K. Oh, no, it's kilobytes. Sorry. I got so confused. (laughs) I really thought, for some reason, I thought I was seeing the words word count, and I was just making it up in my head. Those are kilobytes. My bad. Yeah, not quite that long. No, but it is long. Not quite. You're right. That would have been really ridiculous. I don't know why I thought that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, then, I think we're going to end our discussion here of the first part of Sailor Moon 4200. If it sounds like something you might enjoy, I would say you probably will. I recommend it. Go find it. (laughs) Um, And, Mar, thanks once again for coming on and talking with a couple of random people about (laughs) something that you hadn't read, presumably, for a while. Well, thank you so much for inviting me and also giving me an excuse to reread this. Absolutely. Any excuse. (laughs) Um, And do you want to throw out one more link to where you can be found on the internet if you are looking for people to pay attention to you on the internet? Oh, yes. Um, We can be found, my podcast can be found at The Dreaming Prophet, located on Spotify, uh, Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, pretty much anywhere you can find a podcast. If you go ahead and you just Google The Dreaming Prophet, that will turn up our Twitter and the rest of our links, or else you can find us at thedreamingpc at twitter.com. And Mar Prophet here is P-R-O-P-H-E-T, right? Not like making money. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it is P-R-O-P-H-E-T, as in theological, not financial, even though I would love that. (laughs) (laughs) That is truly a dream in the podcast business, yes. (laughs) As for this, this was episode 96 of Retro Fanfic Retrospective, Sailor Moon 4200 by Angus McSpawn. Angus, Uh I think. McSpawn. You can find a link there at bit.ly slash rfr4200. 
which it will direct you to the website for the fanfic. It's got its own website. Very retro. The intro song for the podcast is The Weekly Fair off of the album Popey's Incredible Adventure by Komiku. The outro song is Run Against the Universe from the same album. You can find that album and other works by Komiku at loyaltyfreakmusic.com. You can find our website at retrofanficretrospective.podbean.com or bit.ly slash retrofanfic. And if you have questions, comments, or thoughts about the episode, you can find us on Twitter at retrofanfic, also Instagram and Facebook at retrofanfic, and Reddit at fanficretrospective, or you can send us an email at retrofanficretrospective at gmail.com. Please, by all means, send us suggestions, you know, comments about fanfics that you've read or been inspired to read, anything about the format of the podcast, we'd love to hear from you. You can also leave comments or reviews on Apple Podcasts in particular, or whatever podcast service you use. I'm Amato. I'm Tori. And I'm Mar. And we are just three Earth life forms trying to be nice to each other and survive until our crystal utopia. Until next time, take care. Yeah. Hopefully a shadowy Lovecraftian government doesn't overtake our dreams. (laughs) 